Christianity isn't so much about bad people following a bunch of rules and becoming good. It's far more about dead people following a risen king and becoming alive. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 67th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. historical context that puts you in the action. While we often relegate Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts, that's not the message of the gospel. No, the gospel, the good news, is about how our God has come as a human being, saved us from our evil inclinations, and will return as our forever king. Furthermore, it's about how God changes the self-serving hearts of humanity into hearts that desire what He desires. The gospel is the power of God working within us to change us from the inside out. And the darker things around us become, the brighter the work of God among us becomes. As we get into today's episode, you're going to find that we cover some fairly dark subject matter. But this is the real stuff of ancient Roman and Greek culture. Furthermore, this demonstrates the power of God in the midst of such circumstances and how the good news about the resurrection of Jesus stands out in stark contrast to the crazy thinking of the day. And with that, let's get started. Holding three sheep knuckle bones in both of her hands, Cora then drops them to the mat below and sees how they land. She studies the markings, picks up the bones, and releases them for the third time. She looks up at her customer and begins shaking her head. Let me do this again, she offers with a tone of sympathy. Out of the corner of her eyes, she spots one of her owners some fifty feet away, staring back at her. Within a matter of seconds, the other owner, his brother, joins him for a private conversation. No doubt this is about me. She sighs at the routine and looks back at the bones below. The two brothers huddle closely for their ongoing business conversation. We need more of these girls, Orion says as he gestures towards Cora. She has a a gift. His brother, Xander, shakes his head and responds, Snap out of it, man. I'm not going to let you ruin our enterprise because you're so entranced with Cora's gift. Backhanding his brother's shoulder, he continues, To your point, though, if we're going to make this work, we need more girls to be working like... Xander stops himself and watches Cora stand up. What is she doing? Xander asks. Why is she leaving her customer in the middle of a fortune telling? Where is she going? Orion asks as he begins to go after her. Wait, Xander says as he grabs Orion's shoulder from behind. Now what is she doing? Is she following those guys? The brothers watch Cora walk away from them while raising her arms in a strange display. Unable to make out what's being said, the brothers slowly walk behind Cora out of sheer curiosity. Luke looks around to breathe in the scene in front of him, the sedate river tucked beneath the sprawling trees as ideal for a place of prayer. Nudging Gaius standing next to him, Luke says, I can get used to coming here to meet. Not bad, huh? Gaius responds. Yeah, I like it here as well. The two watch Lydia's entire family wade into the river, Others follow in kind and circle around Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Gaius, we'd better get over there, Luke says as he steps into the water. Paul smiles as he calls Lydia over. Announcing to the crowd surrounding them, he offers, 
This is one impressive woman, he says. But I don't think you needed me to tell you that. You've known this all along. The smaller crowd of people greet in agreement, which causes Lydia to blush and to look down at the water below her waist. Signaling Timothy and Silas to move in closer, Paul then looks for Gaius and Luke, who have reached the side of the river, and begin to wade in. He nods for them to come and assist. Paul wades deeper into the river and turns around to speak to the small crowd gathered along the bank. He cups his hands into the water and scoops out what he can show his audience before the water drips through his fingers. He says, This is water. There's nothing special about this water. At least, it's no more special than the water you'll find elsewhere. He laughs as he continues, It's just water. This water isn't special on account of its physical properties. No, this water is special because of the people who occupy it at this very moment. It's special because those of you here are seeking to pledge yourselves to Jesus. This water is special in that it symbolizes how God is at work in you, you who are about to fully go under its surface. As Paul further lowers himself into the water, he says, You're going into the water as those who are choosing to die with Christ. And as you go the way of the cross, you are crucifying your old lives and dying to your old desires for personal gain. You're dying to life as you know it. Lydia looks at her brother with a huge smile and sees that he isn't. Sensing his newly found angst, she commands, My brother, look at me. He does. Hear me when I say this, Lydia continues. What do we have to hold on to? Don't you see? This is the way to complete freedom. Freedom to be fully employed for our gracious God, who delights in satisfying our needs. Do you trust me? She asks. He looks back at her and slowly nods. Then take the plunge, she says. Just follow my lead. Resurrection to new life is what is on the other side, Paul continues. The Spirit of God will come upon you as a deposit for what is to come, an eternity under our life-giving King, the very reason for which we were created. Will you pledge yourself to Jesus, the King who shall reign forevermore on David's throne? Yes, will you? Then let God begin a new work in you right now. Sitting with her back against a cold block wall, Cora stares back at Orion with a glazed-over look. Do you see what I mean? Orion erupts as he lifts his bloodied arm to show his brother, just as he aims to backhand the helpless young woman seated in front of him for a third go. His arm is suddenly clutched in midair. Enough, Xander yells out as he grabs Orion's arm and pushes him to the floor. What are you doing, you idiot? Surprised at his brother's outburst, Orion looks around in confusion. Xander speaks out. Why would you cause any more harm to our business than what's already been done? Use your brain. He gestures over to Cora and says, Don't you see? She's drugged herself. She might as well be in a trance. If you make it worse by slugging her, what do you think will keep her from checking out permanently? Now, get a cloth, some water, and oil, and we'll clean her up. With jumbled emotions, Orion sulks as he gets to his feet and brushes the dust off of his knees. He then quietly leaves the room. Oh, Cora, what have you done? Xander says as he gives attention to the damage. He gets on his knees, comes inches away from her face, and looks directly into her empty eyes. What are you looking at, Cora? He backs up and turns his head to see if she's staring at anything. 
It's a wall, he says as he turns back to face her. He then sees her lips moving ever so slightly, mouthing something. Duloy of the Most High God, she faintly utters. Again, she says, they are here, Duloy the Most High God. And again, they are here, Duloy of the Most High God. Though barely audible, Xander makes out what is being said. Are we headed back to the river today? Timothy asks as the men wake to the chirping of unfamiliar birdsong in the oaks above them. Laying on his back, Paul takes in the sprawling oak branch above him and quietly mouths, Thank you for this, Lord. Not a bad way to wake up. Realizing he wasn't heard, Timothy asks again. Paul shifts his head and looks over to see Timothy beginning to roll up his mat. I think so, he says. Luke chimes in. Yeah, the river seems to be quite the place these days. Lydia seems to have gotten the word out, that's for sure. Good morning, Lydia calls out as she walks out from the back of the home. Did I hear my name called out? Paul shifts his head to glance at his hostess. Luke also looks up and says, You did. I was just mentioning how impressed I am by the way you're getting the word out around town. Lydia smiles at this. I couldn't think of anything more worthwhile to talk about, she says. Lydia then looks down at Paul and remarks, I'm so grateful that you've taken me up on my offer to have you stay with us. As I said earlier, I don't take no for an answer. Paul laughs at this. No, I don't suppose you do, he says and takes a deep breath. Thank you for insisting upon our staying here. It's delightful under these oaks, and your hospitality is first-rate. Lydia smiles at this. I suppose you're heading back to the river today? People seem to keep coming, so yeah, I hope to gather with them today, Paul responds. Wonderful, Lydia responds. Let me get you something to eat first. Paul smiles as Lydia heads back into the house. Getting up, he begins to look around at the sizable area around them and says, Yes, this might work. As various family members begin to bring out the leftovers from yesterday's meal for the men to eat, Lydia walks back out to check in. Oh, good, Paul calls out. Lydia, I want to run something by you. What would you think about hosting a gathering for our new believers? Paul gestures around the backyard, right here. On a paved road leading out from the city gates, the clinking of a nearby metalsmith continues in rhythmic fashion. Next to the smith, a tent maker sits under a porch of his own making while viewing the shoppers and other vendors engage in their daily activities. His ears perk up when he sees the same large crowd of people following the short, bald Jewish man yet again. He looks up at the sun's position and shakes his head in appreciation of what's been escalating over the past several days. To his left, he sees a man observing from under the shade of an olive tree some distance away. There he is, he mutters to himself. Xander, always calculating that one, ever plotting out his next several moves. The tent maker then smirks in a self-satisfied way when he spots the other and continues his commentary. But with Xander around, we can always expect the half-witted thug to be lurking about. Ah, there he is, as if on cue, he says. Orion, oh, the mighty hunter ever skulking upon his prey and waiting to devour. He sighs. Watching both Xander and Orion stare at the young woman across the road from him, the tent maker then turns to look at her squad on her simple, unshaded mat as she normally does. How can she be comfortable sitting like that, he wonders. 
Strolling at a slow pace, Paul, Gaius, Luke, Timothy, and Silas engage with the others who walk with them towards the river, ever responding to their questions and curious natures. Realizing they are running somewhat late, Paul excuses himself from this conversation and says to Luke, who is on his other side, Luke, I sense that we will have a big crowd waiting for us at the river. Would you run over there and let them know we're on our way? Take Timothy and Gaius with you. You guys can start teaching right away. He looks over at Silas, who is also having a deeper conversation, and shrugs. We'll catch up, eventually. Luke tags Timothy and Gaius, and together they rush off down the road. Paul turns back to his other conversation and says, I'm sorry, we've got a few things happening at the same time. Now, where were we? Well, we were talking about how your God placed his righteousness. Right, Paul responds. Yes, let's figure out what was needed. Stopping in mid-sentence, Paul finds himself becoming agitated. He lets out a deep breath as he sees, out of the corner of his eyes, the same young woman glaring back at him. He sighs as he tries to formulate a thoughtful response. I'm sorry, Paul says as he nods in the direction of the woman. It's been the same every day when we pass by here. She glares at us, then sneers, then follows us while proceeding to yell at the top of her voice. Kind of hard to have a conversation, you know. Feeling a tap on his shoulder, Paul looks back to see Silas point out what he has already spotted. Yeah, I see her, Paul replies. Just keep walking and talking, man. Cleaning his dirty fingernails with a small knife, Orion looks up and watches the three visitors pass by them. He nudges Xander and points them out. Where are the Jewish men, Xander asks. They're always with those guys. I don't, Orion begins. Xander interrupts with a gesture of his eyes and quietly says, There they are. He then looks behind him and sees the three continue to walk in the other direction, now some distance away. Perfect, he says. Feeling ever the spectator, the tent maker gives his full attention to the drama unfolding in front of him. To his left, he sees Xander and Orion at full attention, ready to pounce. In front of him, the deranged woman who almost appears to be seething like some rabid animal. To his right, he sees two helpless men with an entourage of people who will scatter at a moment's notice. Oh man, if I could only sell tickets, he says in amusement. Any moment now. Trying his hardest to avoid eye contact, Paul sees the young woman impressively stand up from her squatted position. Feeling the weight of her attention, he gives a silent prayer. Oh Lord, I don't even know what to do with this. Please make it obvious to me. Obsessed, Cora stands and purposely walks towards the two Jewish men. Raising an arm, she points at the men. Here we go, Xander says. Here what goes, Orion asks. What are we doing? Right now, we're just waiting, Xander says. But be ready to act. The tent maker's eyes widen as he sees the tension build within a matter of seconds. Here we go, he says. Feeling under the scorn of something dark, Paul looks at Silas and says, Here we go. Wait, what? Silas asks. Here what goes? With a primal scream, Cora suddenly commands the attention of the entire road. People halt in their steps and turn to locate where the scream is coming from. She screams again, a deafening, murderous scream. Breathing deeply, she manically points to the two men who now stand directly in front of her. The metalsmith stops clinking, and the other vendors make their way to the roadside to check out the ruckus. Seething, Cora continues to point and yells out, These men, they are Duloi of the Most High God. They are here to tell you how to be saved. 
She says it again. These men are Duloy of the Most High God. They are here to tell you how to be saved. What do we do? Silas asks as he feels the spittle of Korah's scream land on the back of his neck. He then looks around to see the roadside filled with people. Those who are asking questions have fled, leaving just the two of them. Just keep walking, Paul says. She'll quiet down in a moment. She doesn't. At the top of her voice, Cora follows right behind the men and repeatedly yells out, These men are Duloy of the Most High God. They are here to tell you how to be saved. These men! Finally, Paul stops, and with a freshly determined look, he rolls his eyes and turns to face the screaming woman who stops in her tracks, inches away from his face, feeling the wind of her exhale. Paul sternly looks at her and absorbs what is really at work here. This is something far more than a disturbed woman, he thinks to himself, as he watches her nostrils flare in and out. This is a woman who has lived in torment. Meeting the eyes of the countless spirits that stare back at him through this poor woman's eyes, Paul utters in an even voice, I command you. In the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of this woman. Cora's eyes widen. The tent maker's jaw drops. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Oh my, what has just happened here? What will become of Cora? What will her owner, Xander, and Orion think? Moreover, what will happen with Paul and Silas? Well, you'll have to tune in next time for that. In the meantime, there are so many things happening here that we can address. To name a few, we could talk about demon possession and how drug use plays into it. In ancient Rome and Greece, opium was the drug of choice and readily available in markets everywhere. So drug use and abuse was pretty common. As for drug use, opium, among other options, was often used in sorcery practices, making demonic channeling a very popular activity for those who were impaired. Incantations, potions, divination, among with a number of other channels, were frequently used to invite the spirit world into the world as we know it. Not only was this regularly practiced, it was expected. Now, as you might imagine, the idea of a jealous god who insists on being worshipped alone would have been seen as a huge threat to those who made a living off of polytheistic worship practices, like Korah and her owners. Mosaic law forbade such practices. Consequently, being Jewish wasn't easy. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those other nations. They shall not be found among you. Anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, which was child sacrifice, and that was very commonplace in ancient cultures, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. That's Deuteronomy 18.9-14. Curiously, the word for sorcerer is pharmakios, which is where we derive the use of pharmacy from. 
When we see demon possession take place in Scripture, it's not uncommon to see drug use play into it. By the way, this doesn't mean that medications are inherently evil. Medications are tools that can be used for good or evil purposes. Okay, we can also talk about suicide. The juice or caplets of poppy and hemlock led to the easiest of deaths in Roman culture. Rome wasn't exactly known for putting a high value on life, so suicide was fairly common, and this was one way to make it happen. Thank God we don't live in Rome. I don't think we would appreciate how difficult life was back then. Anyway, we could also talk about the treatment of slaves as property in a Roman caste system which would point out all sorts of brutish treatments of humanity at the time. Moreover, terrible treatment of women in many cases was commonplace, especially when in some instances enslaved women were also treated like property. Much of the landowners around Philippi were Roman. Well, this is due to the Roman victory from the Battle of Philippi, which happened a century earlier. So, allotments of land were made available to the descendants of the Roman soldiers who fought there. Philippi was a very Roman military type of city. Rome ruled, and so did Roman values, with a complex tiered caste system. Depending on your bloodline, life could be good or flat-out horrible. But let's spend our time, our final moments, talking about baptism and what it's about. While baptism became more sophisticated in the 3rd and 4th centuries, making use of catechism and confirmation and or creed recitation, it was a much simpler process in the early church. Where did the idea of baptism come from? Those converting to Judaism as far back as the Babylonian exile would repeatedly engage in ritual immersion referred as the tevilah. The mikvah, designed as a ritual bath with flowing water, though in southern Israel, where living off a of cistern water didn't exactly make that possible, was used for purification rites and had some similarities to baptism some 500 years before Christianity began. By the time John the Baptizer came on the scene, immersion-based baptism was seen as the norm for getting right with God and beginning a new path for one's life. Since pretty much every Jew in this part of the world was familiar with this ritual, it would make sense why Jesus would incorporate baptism to play a significant role in one's conversion experience. Dying to her old life, a believer's baptism would mark a new beginning and a newly birthed life in Christ, imputed with the righteous identity of God and citizenship of heaven. This begs to question the use of baptism as a vehicle for justification which is our positional aspect of salvation. Does God require our baptism to forgive our sins and impart his righteousness upon us? Answer, yes and no. I know, not very helpful, right? There are too many instances where one could not be baptized, say as Lydia and her family were, due to one's incapacity. In these cases, we would find ourselves questioning the fairness of God towards those who could not physically go through the rigors of getting into a river and being fully immersed. But that is a different spirit than one who refuses to be baptized because he didn't want to. Most likely, that spirit of independence would reveal something much deeper going on that God needs to work on within that individual. Saying this, baptism is not for God's benefit, not directly anyway. No. Baptism is for us, individually and communally. 
The ritual or sacrament of baptism involves several components to encourage believers to live in light of their faith commitments. Paul sums up the idea behind baptism right here in Romans 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might too walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. That's Romans 6, 3-7. So here's just a few takeaways about baptism. Number one, baptism helps one remain committed to her conversion decision. Much like a marriage commitment made in front of others, baptism is the public decision to begin anew and that one will pursue life in light of her new birth. When things go awry, and by the way, they always will, we may remind ourselves, be reminded by others, or allow circumstances to remind us about our commitment to follow Christ. This is the way towards maturity. Learning about life in view of your commitments, eventually to discover that God's ways are truly best. If you've been married for a while, then you are familiar with those moments where you've entertained getting out of the marriage. But your commitments, your vows, keep you from leaving. Eventually, you've come to realize that your marriage's success has been dependent upon your investment into it. When invested, a marriage turns out to be awesome. It's true. It's the same for baptism. When invested, your faith journey comes alive and becomes satisfied. 2. Baptism is all about our new identity in Christ. When baptized, we go through the ceremonial act of exchanging our old nature for a new one. In effect, we have died to our old lives and have journeyed with Christ and his death to see it through. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Baptism is the clear marker for any follower to abandon one's old life, that is, one's former nature and desires, in exchange for the new and resurrected life offered in Christ. This ceremony is beneficial for both the believer and the community of like-minded faith followers who will surround and encourage one another to stay the course. Third, it's a private thing. The act of baptism is a key event in a young believer's timeline whereby she internally remembers this event and is reminded of her commitments to her new life in Christ. But it's also forth publicly. The act of baptism is a key event that takes place in front of other believers who are in one's life to encourage, remind, and warn fellow believers to remain in alignment with Christ and the Holy Spirit. Let's face it. We don't always desire what God desires for us. So we rely upon one another to remind us and to demonstrate for us what God looks like in human form. Well, we can probably go on about the subject of baptism, but I hope this cleared a few things up. May you walk in the newness of life that God has prepared for those who have been reborn through baptism. May the Spirit of God continue to do His faithful and patient work within you ever directing you towards the priceless inheritance which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, let's move forward together. Together.